So I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 25, if you will, Matthew chapter 25. We're going to continue on a series that we started a couple of weeks ago. I interrupted it for Father's Day, but we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I don't think that there's a subject that ought to be more pertinent and more relevant to us today than this one. We live in a day and an age when there's been such rapid and drastic changes that have taken place in our world. It's easy for us, if we're not careful, to become discouraged. We can, we can begin to focus on um, what the world is reporting to us in the major news channels. And if you read that and listen to that enough, it certainly won't pick you up. It won't be a picker-upper, and uh, so we need to look to the Word of God. I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin in verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were wise and five were foolish, and uh, uh, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, and the bridegroom tarried and slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, and behold, the bridegroom cometh, and go ye out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, there shall be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them and sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. And afterwards came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man, when the Son of Man cometh. And so then go back, if you will. I want to go back. That's showing obviously the, uh, the parable of the ten virgins and the importance of being saved in God's timing. Verse number 1 of 24. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed, let no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of war. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginnings, that's important, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Father, help us now, I pray, as we uh, get into today's message, speak to our hearts, and um, move us, Lord, in the areas we need moving in. Convict us, Lord, draw us close to you. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. 
In our first message that we brought a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the certainty of his coming. The reality that Jesus Christ promised that he would come back. Uh, he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also, John chapter 14. And so Jesus made a promise, and we talked about the three witnesses. You remember we talked about the importance of eyewitnesses and, uh, in a trial, and how that when someone is an eyewitness, their, their testimony at the trial brings forth uh, uh, great authority. And so we formed ourselves, if we could, into a little courtroom a couple of weeks ago, and we brought to the witness stand the, the witness of the empty tomb. And we talked about the fact that Jesus told us that he would rise again from the dead, and he did. And if Jesus died and rose again the third day as he promised, why wouldn't we believe him about the second coming? If Jesus is still in the grave, if it's filled with the decayed uh, bones of a dead Savior, then Jesus was a fraud. Christianity is a myth. And everything that we believe about it is untrue. The reality of the matter is the empty tomb, the empty grave, the risen Savior is the very first witness that, that, that gives uh, the, the credentials of his promise of a second coming. The second witness we called was the witness of the word. On the day that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled on that very one day. There are more than twice that pro many prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ and his millennial kingdom. And so if, if, if the smaller prophecy was fulfilled in Bethlehem's manger that lonely night when Christ, the, the Son of God, was born into this world in swaddling clothes, how much more should we give our heart and our faith to the fact that he will indeed come again as he promised that he would. The third witness we call to the stand was the witness of Jesus himself. He promised. He made a promise that he was coming back. And if he doesn't, then everything he ever said was false. John 3.16 is, a, is just a farce. If, if, if Jesus isn't coming back, then there is no heaven. There is no hell. Every man becomes a God unto himself, and every man must do that which is right in his own eyes. If, if, if he's not coming back, then he's a self-appointed Messiah whose resurrection was his hope, and his grave holds the decaying uh, leftovers of a dead man. And so the reality of the matter is the witness of the empty tomb, the witness of the Word, and the witness of Jesus himself uh, tell us that he is indeed, as he said he would, he's coming again. Now, can you imagine listening as Jesus talks to his disciples? They're sitting there on the Mount of Olives, looking out across the Kidron Valley at the eastern side of the city. Before them is the, uh, the beautiful edifice known as, as Herod's Temple. It is an incredible building, ornate and in its splendor. If I recall correctly, Herod took 40 years to construct it, and it's, it's just a magnificent building. And uh, people that travel the world have written in their journals about the, the, uh, the, the visual effect that it had upon somebody as they approach the city of Jerusalem. And so they're looking out there uh, at that building, which was, by the way, the pride 
It was the pride of the Jewish population. Do you hear what these men are saying to Jesus? They're saying to him as they sit here, remember Jesus is a Galilean and and, 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 and so here they are looking out across this. Some of his disciples were city boys from Jerusalem. As they look out across that, they're pointing out to him the beauty of the buildings. That's literally what they're doing. Jesus, have you seen this? What do you think of this? Look at that building. There's no building in all the world like that building. And they're talking about how that Herod's building took the place of the old Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple and, 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 and just the absolute uh, awe-inspiring splendor of that. And then Jesus says to them in verse 2 of Matthew 24, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. They're bragging on their building. And Jesus said, see that building you're talking about? There'll come a day when not one stone will be left upon another. It shall be absolutely and teetotally destroyed. Well, the disciples are stunned. And so they ask him this question. First of all, they said, when shall these things be? Question number one, when shall these things, when's that going to happen? It's going to all be destroyed? Look at that. When's that going to happen? Well, I'll tell you when it happened. It happened in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus stood with his legions across on the Mount of Olives and looked out at at, uh, uh, the, 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 the Temple Mount there, and he said to his men, we're going to burn it to the ground, and every one of you can have whatever you can take. And so as they set fire to that part of the city, and the gold began to melt, they, uh, they tell us in their journals, it crept down in between the cracks of the stones and the rocks, and men would literally pull them apart and, 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 and tumble them aside so they could reach down and, and, and pull up the gold that had melted in in, in batches all over that place. They literally ransacked the city and destroyed it. I've been to Rome, Italy, and I've stood and looked at the Arch of Titus and saw the, 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 uh, uh, the menorah, the candelabra, and, and the golden trumpets and the things that, it's just an entire spectrum that, a, that an artist sculpted who had been with them of all the things that they brought back from Uh, from their ransacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And in fact, there's been some ongoing conflict between the Vatican and Israel because Israel believes that the Vatican has within their basement of antiquities the golden candelabra, the menorah that they need to reinstitute their, their temple practices. And so, so Jesus said, it'll all be destroyed. And his disciples said, question number one, when shall these things be? It was fulfilled in 70 AD. And then they ask him this question, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, I want to remind you that when we talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're, we're talking about two very distinct events that are very closely linked. We're, first of all, we're discussing the rapture Uh, And then second of all, we're talking about the literal second coming when Jesus comes to this earth, sets his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and according to the Scriptures, the Mount will rend in half, and Jesus will set up his throne room in Jerusalem and rule and reign during that millennial kingdom for a thousand years. The rapture is when Jesus comes back, according to to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and delivers us from a world that's going to face the wrath of God. The Bible said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, 17, and 18, For the Lord himself 
shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, and wherefore comfort one another with these words. That word caught up together comes from the word raptio. It's, it's, it's what we get our word rapture from. And so Jesus is going to come, and he's going to, he's going to rescue us from the wrath of God. Now, there are people that want to convince you that we're going to go through part of the tribulation. Well, that's a comfort. That's a comfort. Hey, guess what? You're going to suffer hell on earth for, I don't know, maybe four, four and a half years. Uh, even though you're, you're the bride of Christ, uh, God's going to allow the tar to be beat out of you so that you'll be a really good bride. And then in the middle of, of, of what seems like hell on earth, and we'll see that later, okay, death came on a pale horse and he said, and hell, hell rides with him. And so you think things are bad now. It's hot outside, but listen, it's nothing like it's going to be during the tribulation period. But the idea that we're going to go through part of the tribulation, and so Paul says, wherefore comfort one another. Be, listen, be, you ought to be comforted by this. We're only going through part of the tribulation period. That's not a comfort. That's not how, that's not how a holy God, that's not, how a, that's not how a sinful man treats his bride. And so it, it's ludicrous. Notice this. Notice this, that it, the tribulation period is a time when a Christ-rejecting world will face the wrath of Almighty God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 and 16 and 17. Revelation 6, 15, 16 and 17 says this, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Why are they hiding themselves? Well, verse 16, and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath, not of man, the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for great, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Now here's my joy. My joy is that at the age of 12 years old, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and was born again as a 12-year-old boy in Savannah, Georgia at the old Bull Street Baptist Church. I'm thankful for that. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'll tell you why, because he's promised that he's coming back for me and he's going to rescue me from a world that is experiencing wrath. The, the, the Bible said, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, listen to this, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He delivered me. Listen, why, why would it be double jeopardy? Why would Jesus suffer my wrath and I have to suffer it also? That's, that makes no sense. So Jesus went to the cross and suffered my hell for me, and yet I've got to live through part of hell on earth for him? Then, then why did Jesus say it's finished? Why is the word it's done? It's over. It's finished. There's nothing else left. There's no more to be paid. All of my punishment, listen, don't ever miss this. All of my punishment, every ounce of my punishment was placed upon Christ on Calvary's tree. That's why, that's why the horrendous gruesomeness of it all was placed upon me, uh, upon him. And I'm glad for that. 
I'm glad that he suffered and bled and died for me and, and that, uh, that he's written my name in the book of life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God hath not appointed us to wrath. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the rapture. And he's rescuing me out of a world that is doomed for wrath. Second of all, there's the second coming, and that's when Jesus comes back to earth. He wins the battle of Armageddon. I've stood there on the precipice of that hill of Megiddo and looked out across that vast valley of Jezreel, the valley of Megiddo. Napoleon stood there years ago and looked out across it and said, this is the most strategic battlefield in all the world. And for 157 miles, five and a half feet deep, the blood will flow as Jesus comes back and, and does battle with the armies of the world. And they're slain by the word of his mouth. I want to tell you that he's going to set up uh, his millennial kingdom and will rule and reign on this earth. Now, the rapture and the second coming are, are closely related. They're seven years apart, uh, and, and yet the signs are closely related. It's sort of like, it's sort of like at Thanksgiving, you, you begin to see Chris, signs of Christmas, okay? It's getting earlier now. They're probably putting them out now. But, but when you get to Thanksgiving, you know Christmas, Christmas is coming. It's Thanksgiving. Christmas will be soon. So a lot of the signs of the rapture and the signs of the second coming are closely related. That's why the Bible said that, that uh, this is the beginning of sorrows. The first eight verses of Matthew chapter 24, he goes through a list of things and he says this, when you begin to see these things, these are the beginnings. This, the end is not yet, but these are the beginnings. We're beginning to see the world set itself up for what's going uh, to happen. Now, when the clouds darken and the winds pick up, you know a storm is on its way. And I want to just tell you, if you've got any perception at all, you can look out at our world and you can feel the, you can feel the, 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 uh, the ill winds that are blowing across our culture and you can, you can sense the darkening of the clouds and you know that we're heading to that place. Now, let me, let me just give you one word of caution. Be very careful not to set dates. Okay? Be very careful not to follow date setters. Any man that steps out and says that he can, he can set a date, I want to tell you he's in grave danger. We can talk about the signs, and we know the signs, but Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So we don't know when these things are going to happen. We can, we can tell as we're getting close to them but we can't say to set a date. I remember years ago, a man by the name of Ed, Edwin Weisenot wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And it was ludicrous. It spread all over the place and people began to read it and businesses closed down. The American Bible Society in Nashville shut their doors for a week because the rapture was going to happen. And, and preachers all over the town where I was pastoring uh, held revival meetings that week because they wanted to have they wanted to have they wanted to be in church when the rapture took place. And so everybody was excited. Well guess what? Not only did September bypass, but 1988 bypassed. Well the week after the rapture was supposed to happen 
I took out a section of the newspaper and called for every pastor who had had a revival that week waiting on the rapture to get up in front of their church and apologize for false information or be honest and resign. They never invited me to the ministerial association because of that. But the reality of the matter is, well, you can't, you can't do that. Jesus said, don't do that. Look at the signs and know the storm is coming, but don't try to set a date. Now, let me give you some signs. And by the way, they said, what are the signs of your coming? That's a reasonable question. These are men that followed him. He, he, he told them he was going away, but he was coming back. And so it's very reasonable for them to ask him the question, well, what will, what will the signs be? Well, the first thing that he talks with them about is indifference toward God. Notice in Matthew 24, verse 37. Matthew 24, verse 37. But at the, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, what does that teach us? It teaches us that one of the signs of the coming of Jesus Christ, as the storm clouds darken, the sign will be indifference. There'll be, a, there'll be an indifference toward God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse number um, Five, it does say that man's, the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. Wait a minute. But Jesus is talking about now the signs of his second coming, and he doesn't mention that. It's mentioned in Genesis 6, 5. But Jesus said, the predump, of course it's going to be wicked. Of course it's going to be vile. Of course it's going to be a horrible world. But the world's always like that. Jesus said, that's not, the, that's not you'll always find that in the world. Jesus said this, here's, here's one of the signs of my coming. You will notice an indifference toward God. Men are what? Eating. Drinking. That's just hydrating. Marrying. Giving in marriage. What is, what is he talking about? The routines of life. People are just, they're not, there's, listen, Genesis chapter 6, they weren't thinking about God. Did you know that Noah, the Bible says Noah, was a preacher of righteousness? So right down the road, they had this crazy guy building a big boat. Somebody went by and said, what are you doing, dude? Where you get all this wood? He said, I'm building an ark. Really, what's an ark? It's a giant boat. And they looked around, there's nothing to float it. Why are you, why are you building that? Because I've got to put all the animals in it. Why are you putting all the animals in it? Because God's sending a judgment. The Bible said he was a preacher of righteousness. But the people turned a deaf ear to him. You know why? They didn't care about God. They didn't care about judgment. They weren't afraid of accountability. They were living life their way, indifferent toward God, indifferent toward righteousness. And they just simply said, we, we're, not going to, we're not going to fret ourselves over giving an account to a God we're not even connected to. And so they just lived a life full speed ahead, with no concern whatsoever that they would stand before God. No regard for judgment. No regard for God. Boy, I want to tell you, we, we live in that day and age today, do we not? We, we, we're here in a time when, when people aren't concerned about God's house. They're not concerned about, about God. Um, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another, listen to this, so much the more, listen, 
as ye see the day approaching. What's he talking about? He's saying, as you see the clouds darkening, as you begin to realize that Jesus is coming back and that you're going to stand before him and you're going to give an account, I'm going to tell you something. Listen to me. I don't want to stand before the Lord having spent my time down at the lake or in the mountains. And I, I look, those are all good things in their place. But I want to tell you, we, we better realize that man did not design the church. Jesus designed the church. And he requires those of us who are his children to be faithful to the house of God. Don't ignore, don't ignore what Jesus established. Be faithful, not indifferent to, to the things of God. In fact, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 7, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. For if it first begin with us, Peter wrote this, if it first begin with us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Dear friend, if we've got a relationship with Jesus Christ, we ought to live it out in our life. For me to say, I love my daddy, I love pop, I love mom, and yet to never go see them, to never spend time with them, to never live my life in such a manner that brings honor to them is a fraud. And so we've got to live out our faith before others. The lost world knows what they expect of us. They're tired of hypocrites. They expect faithfulness out of the children of God. Second, second sign is not just indifference toward God, but it's an increasing sinfulness in people. Listen to this, Matthew 24, verse 12, and because, and because iniquity shall abound... That word iniquity is a strong word for sin because iniquity shall abound. Listen to this. The love of many shall wax cold because what? Iniquity, because of sin, because iniquity shall abound. The love of many shall wax cold. You know, we have a pandemic of today. It's hate. It's not a virus. It's an attitude. It's hate. And the reality of, of the matter is, is that, I mean, how do you walk into a place and just take a gun and start killing people? How do you drive by a neighborhood and roll the window down and just take a gun and start shooting and kids fall dead? How do you go into a school and, and just start shooting classmates that you played on the playground with maybe since... Since elementary school, how do, how, do you just, how do you just take life with no thought? Well, the more sinful we get, the more galvanized we become to emotions. Listen, we teach young people that they evolved rather than were, were, were created by a holy God. That man just came from a big bang and now suddenly here we are millions of years later and, and, and we come from animals. And so we wonder why our young people have no sense of emotion and respect for human life and, and feeling toward the things that God has gifted us with because there is not a God to gift us. So who is the giver and the taker of life? Man becomes God, and every man does that which is right in his own eyes, and we're humanistic. We worship ourselves. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, talking about the end times, Paul wrote this, uh, um, uh, for this know also that in the last days, listen to this, perilous times 
shall come. Then he describes it. Well, what does he describe? There's a strawberry moon tomorrow night. We got blood moons popping up everywhere. I've never seen so many blood moons. You know why? Because they were around, but nobody talked about them. Son, there's four blood moons this month. You know, and everybody's nervous. You know, things are happening in the heavens. Well, okay. I understand some of that's in the Bible. But the predominant thing that, that the Holy Spirit of God inspired Paul to write was not about the blood moons. It wasn't about the meteors. It wasn't about, it wasn't about that kind of thing. Listen to me. What the, the predominant thing when he said, this know that in the last days perilous times shall come, he starts talking about the changes in people. For men shall be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. He starts giving illustrations of of, of the changes in people, it says that they're, they'll, be, they'll be covetous and boasters and proud and blasphemers and disobedient to parents and unthankful, without natural affection and truce breakers and false accusers and incontinent and fierce and despisers of those that are good and traitors and heady and high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Without natural affection, what does that mean? That means their affections aren't natural. That means mothers are aborting children. They're killing their babies. I saw Stephanie this morning with three beautiful, just beautiful kids of Tyler's. Those are love children. Did you know this? That there are children in the world that would have just as much promise and just as much hope and just as much love as those children, except they're viewed, they're, they're viewed as inconveniences. And so in the guise of a mother's right to choose, it's not her right to choose for another beating heart. She stops that beating heart and takes the life of an unborn child. That's not natural affection. Now I'm going to say something. I want you to listen to me carefully because every family is connected probably somehow, some way to this Every family, somehow, I'm not talking about being ugly. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about spewing vileness. But I'm just going to tell you now, I want you to hear me and hear me clearly. The reality of the matter is, is that, that male and female created he them. That's what the Bible said. That's what the Scripture said. Have you not read Matthew 19, 4, Jesus speaking, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. You don't get to choose your pronouns. You don't get to identify yourself in some other way other than what the Bible says. And the reality of the matter is simply this. The further we get, listen, the further we get from this book, the weirder we are becoming in our world. I read the other day that they're now working on laws in certain areas where you cannot be called a mother. You can't use the pronoun mom. You're now a birthing person. That's true, by the way. That's not, I mean, that's true. You're, you're, a, you're now a birthing person. Can I just say this? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And somebody wrote, somebody said, this is stupid, and this is what I said in reply. Sin makes people stupid. The more sinful we become as a nation, the more stupid we're going to become. 
And the reality of the matter is the stupidity has not stopped. The further we get from God, the more, the more ignorant this world is going to become. Can you imagine? Can you imagine at any point prior to 2020 that any official would have the boldness to step up behind a microphone and declare a church non-essential? And yet there are pastors right now in Canada that are in jail simply because they had a church service. And some of them were outdoors. And so they sent helicopters over to find where the people were worshiping. They came to the pastor's house, handcuffed him, and he's in jail today. Because a church now is not essential. The bar isn't. If you go to Oregon, you can find little buildings with funny-looking leaves on the outside of it. They can sell you funny weed. And you know what? That's, that's essential. Liquor stores are essential because people have to have that to get through the pandemic. <laughs> but the house of God isn't. I'm, I'm grateful for those leaders who had more wisdom than that. I'm very, very thankful for that. So there, there's, there's another sign. We, we're talking about the fact that that there's an indifference toward God. There's an increasing sinfulness amongst people. Third of all, listen carefully to this, there will be racial uprisings. Now, I want you to look with me in chapter 24 of Matthew. Look in verse number 7. Would you do that? Matthew 24 and verse number 7. I want you to look at that specifically. We talked about this on a Wednesday night probably six months ago. But the Bible says there in verse number 7, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, now stay with me. If you'll study the root of the word nation, it means ethnos. Ethnos. What do we get from the word ethnos? We get the word ethnicity. So when it says nation shall rise against nation, it's not talking about Russia the United States, France, Germany, England, okay? It's not talking about geographical boundary lines. It's talking about ethnic boundary lines. It's talking about, it's talking about tribes. It's talking about races. It's talking about ethnicity. What it's saying there, when it says nation shall rise against nation, it's talking about ethnicity against ethnicity, people groups will rise against people groups. All these, he said, are the beginning of sorrows. Can I tell you we're there today? There's so much racial turmoil in our nation today, it's unbelievable. People hate each other just because of the color of their skin, the texture of their hair, or a background that links them to some group or another group. They murder, they murder each other. They're suspicious of each other. And, 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 and the reality is it, it, there's a lawlessness. The Bible talks about the mystery of iniquity. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, that word iniquity means lawlessness. There's a lawlessness in our land to where our cities are being burned. People are afraid to even speak out what they believe because of a woke culture and, and a cancel culture. And, and we're in a mess in our nation today. 
People are losing their livelihoods, their jobs, just because they say something that might not be considered politically correct by those that control the media. And there's, there's, a, there's a push for that. Now, let me give you the beauty about knowing Christ. The beauty about knowing Christ is found in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 11, where the Bible says there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free. Listen, but Christ is all and in all. Can I tell you this, dear friend? Look at me. Listen to me. There is no place for race in Christianity. None. There's, there's, there's no difference because of how a man looks or the color of his skin or where he traces his lineage. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed of the bounds of their habitation. Go back to the Tower of Babel. We understand that there are people that live in different places around the world and how that happened, but it doesn't make one person better than the other. Let me just stop and just say this. The most ludicrous thing in all the world is for anybody to be proud of who they are or, 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 or what color their skin is. Can you think of anything more ludicrous? Let me help you with this. You didn't choose that. You had nothing to do with it. Okay? You had no choice whatsoever. I've said this to you before, I've got Cherokee blood in me. I'm a little bit proud of that because of the fact that they seem to have civilized and tried to work things out. But then I'm reading a book on Daniel Boone, and and the Cherokee Wars were brutal. My daddies did that. I just thought how horrible. Daniel Boone and all the conflict in those early days. Boy, I want to tell you something. Here's the beauty. Listen, the beauty is this. When you meet Jesus, all that goes away. There's believers, in, there's believers in Korea, there's believers in Japan, there's believers in Africa, there are believers, I just heard from a dear, our missionary buddy Thigpen in Russia, they're, listen, there are believers all around the world, and there's no difference in any of us. Let, let me say this again, let me say this again, to hate a man because of his skin color is an affront to a holy God who made all men in his own image. God help us. Racial uprising. And may I just say this? There are people who have, as their full-time job, keeping racial tension stirred up. Just constant. It's in the media. Everything. Everything's about it. All, all the... All, all the the, the, the teaching about race in schools and the hatred that's the bitterness. God help us. We're, we're, we're in a sad place, I fear, as a nation. L- let me share this with you also, and that is uh, there, will be, there will be a spiritual departure. My last point. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a falling away First, 2 Thessalonians tells us. What is the falling away? It's, it's, a, it's a theological, listen, listen, it's a theological departure. Now look at me. It's a theological departure from the truth of the Word of God. There will be a falling away theologically. I believe that's what that's talking about. We're in a day and age today 
to where in so many churches, doctrine is not emphasized, it's not even important. In fact, we're, doctrine is downplayed, and we're told that in spite and regardless of our doctrine, that we should come together and blend and harmonize and place our feel-good and our entertainment above and beyond the, the doctrinal stands that we take, and there's a falling away. There is a drifting from the importance of thus saith the Lord into now we're emphasizing now now we feel good, we feel better. We come and we sit and we've got a full stage production put on and everybody sits back and is blessed and the reality of the matter is so oftentimes we leave with our hearts not changed, our minds have not been stimulated, we don't understand basic Bible doctrine. Do you know how many people that I deal with that, that wind up coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ that are members of churches, and as I explained to them the gospel, they grew up in a church, they were plugged into the church, their parents were into the church, and yet they leave and, 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 and never come to know Christ as their Savior? The forecast for a church service shouldn't be fog. It ought to be clear as a bell. And God help us that there not be one single person that comes to our church and walks out scratching their head wondering where we stand and what we believe. I, listen, when your kids come to, to our classes in the back, they're not going to walk home with Noah's Ark made out of popsicle sticks. We're going to give them the Bible. We're going to give them the Word of the living God. You know why? Because it's the Word of God that changes their life. Well, they're just little kids. That's when you begin. You begin to teach them the truth of the Bible, and it impacts their life. And they learn that God loves them, and they learn at an early age that Jesus cares and that He died, he died for their sin. Paul wrote Timothy, and he warned him. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So what was, Paul's, what was Paul's admonition to Timothy? He said, preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Well, preacher, I want to come somewhere where I feel good. <laughs> Man, just, just make me feel good about myself. No, reprove, rebuke, those are both negatives. Exhort, there's the encouragement. So it seems to me that because we're such sinners that two-thirds of the time, we need something that reproves and rebukes us, maybe because of the way we've strayed, and then exhorts us to do what's right. I think in every message there should be some reproving and rebuking and exhorting and then he said, do it with all long-suffering and what? Doctrine. Give them the word. Give them the truth. So many times we find churches that are chasing fads and following traditions. Spurgeon said this, the devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. And so we have to make up our mind. Andrew Bonar said this, that great preacher of yesteryear, I looked for the church and I found it in the world, and alas, I, I looked for the world and I found it in the church. And then Paul wrote Timothy and he said, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath 
righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. And then he said, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. Be ye separate from them. Be, touch not the unclean thing. And he said, I'll be a father to you. You'll be children to me. God said, I want to bless you. But in order to do that, you've got to get out of the world. Now, what does the word separate mean? Don't, don't listen. What does the word separate mean? It doesn't mean you have to dress weird. Okay? It doesn't mean you have to act weird. It doesn't mean you have to speak in King's English. How art thou today, my brothereth? Thanketh thee for thine presence in our place. You don't have to talk weird. You don't have to act weird. You don't even have to walk around with your Bible tucked up under your armpit with Velcro all day. You don't have to do that, okay? You don't have to act weird. That's not what being separate means. What being separate means is that you're set apart for God. Now, listen to me carefully. Your convictions will either separate you from the world or the world will separate you from your convictions. One of the two is going to happen. You're going to live separate from someone. You're either going to allow the Word of God to put distance between you and a world that is, that is it, it, it's, it's going out rapidly, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Or you're going to allow the world to put distance between you and God. You're going to be separate, so you have to determine who you're going to be separated to. Separation isn't, look, if, 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 if this is God and that's the world, okay, if I'm, if I'm separated to the world, I'm being separated from God. It's not always, you know, we look at it negative. Well, you know, he can't, he can't do this or that. No, no, no. Those, those, are, those are privileges. Can, have you got me in the camera? Sorry, Roman. Roman's working back there. Uh, so, if I'm separated from the world, guess who I'm separated to? God. To God. So, the reality of the matter is you're going in one direction or another, okay? One direction or another. From the world to God or from God to the world. And this is a world, listen, the, listen, the signs of His coming. Don't, don't flip out. Don't freak out. People are arguing on TV. They're fighting and calling each other names, and man, we're in a mess. People are hating each other, killing each other. Riots are happening based on, based on just superficial things. And everybody sit back, what's happening? Well, that's what's happening right there. That's what's happening. It's this book. Now, now I want you to listen. You better be careful what you read. There's 7,284 new conspiracy theories being, being invented every day. And the only way you can trust them is if they're found on the Internet. Okay? It's the only true place to get any truth at all is the Internet. If you believe that, I can't help you. You've got problems too deep. The reality of the matter, the reality of the matter is there, there's a lot of nutty publications and things. Listen, just get in the book. What does God say? And when I read that book, I know this. I know my God is in control. So Jesus is coming back. What you going to do with it? If you're here today and you're not saved, I want to tell you, this is, Jesus said, behold, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. 
We have no promise of tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. I'm going to wait till tomorrow. My pastor used to say that, that tomorrow is the first word in the devil's vocabulary. Tomorrow. You can deal with that tomorrow. You can get that right tomorrow. No, no, no. Today. Jesus said now. This is the time. Now. We have no promise of tomorrow. Let's bow our heads. Could we? Oh, child of God. If you're saved and you see the darkening skies around us, lift up your head for redemption draweth nigh. Jesus is coming again. He's not going to leave me here. I'm not going to have to navigate my way through it. He's coming back for me. I'm glad. You're saved. He's coming back for you. Do you know the Lord? Let me ask you a question. Are you faithful? You know what Jesus asked? Here's a question from Christ. Listen to this question. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? Wow, what a question. Jesus said, when I come back, is there going to be any faith left? people going to be faithful to my house, faithful in their service, faithful with their love. When the Son of Man cometh, will he find faith on the earth? I want him to find it in my life. Father, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. I pray you'll bless us now. Use us for your glory. And your honor, God, give us a great week. Help us to realize the things that we see are not to discourage us. You told us about them in your word. Help us to live in light of your soon coming. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. All right.